Hello and welcome to my Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. I'm Dr. Richard McKinnon, chartered psychologist and coach, and I'm joined this week by a guest we previously featured on the podcast back in episode 113, Dr. Lynn Lanka. Lynn, it's great to speak with you again. For, for listeners who didn't catch episode 113, or for brand new listeners, and you're all very welcome, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, Richard, thank you so much for this opportunity to come and speak with you and your listeners today. Um, I'm a chartered psychologist as well and a lecturer in organizational behavior at Cranfield University in uh, the UK. And um, yeah, I'm very happy to be here today. It was a real pleasure to come and speak to you previously about the concept of flourishing, Uh, something that I'm currently researching and very passionate about. And I'm really happy to say that actually the research that I've been doing on flourishing recently won best paper on the identity track at the British um, Academy of Management Conference in Manchester just a few weeks back. So really exciting times for research on flourishing. That is fantastic to hear. Um, I love to be able to um, share any of the outputs you have from that with our listeners. So if there's anything available, I'll be able to link to it in the show notes. Fantastic. I have a, a bit of a follow-up question from our last conversation, because what I really wanted to do today was was dive into flourishing is great, but how do we do it practically? Actually, um, in discussion, in discussing the concept with some clients and colleagues over the last few months, it occurs to me that the world has been a really tough place for a while, um, maybe tougher for some of us over the last couple of years. How do we deal with people's cynicism or negativity when it comes to the whole concept of flourishing? You know, I, I've had feedback that that's all right for you, or that's impossible for me, or why would I even try and do this when the world is such a mess right now? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I can appreciate that. And I'm very empathetic to the fact that um, for many people, the past couple of years have really not been uh, conducive to uh, being in a positive frame of mind, there are so many daily reminders, especially if we're active on social media or just watch the news. Mm. There are so many daily reminders of the the things that can um, really bring fear or anxiety or just make us feel um, pessimistic about the world. Um, however, in order to be able to um, lead uh, uh, to have well-being, really, uh, to be able to um, mitigate any possible negative outcomes from this kind of negativity that we are constantly uh, bombarded with now, uh, we really do need to find ways to put ourselves in a positive state of mind. Um, and my experience has been that, um, you know, there are, I think, uh, there is a mental health crisis coming out of the past couple of years. Um, many people are not in the mental space to be able to focus on or even think about these kinds of uh, what can seem abstract, like flourishing. But it is actually the antidote to this, I think, in many ways. Um, so if people feel apathetic about flourishing or apathetic about this idea of, you know, being in a positive state of mind, um, I would say that probably they are the ones who would benefit the most from these kinds of concepts or trying to implement um, some some kind of positive psychology into their life. It's a really good point. And it, isn't it often 
um, those of us who find something difficult that could most benefit from whatever yeah. it is that we feel challenged by. And of course, we're not saying um, everyone must do these things in exactly the same way or that there's some inflexibility around this. One of the things that's really great about this whole concept is my, my key takeaway was the possibility for virtually anyone to introduce it in any way into their lives rather than you must wait for life to look like this before you can do these things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it really is about, you know, you do you, uh, you do you <laughs> in terms of what makes you happy. Um, you know, for me, I love buying fresh flowers every week and having them, um, you know, in a place that I can see that that sparks joy for me, that brings me a sense of positivity. And it can be as simple as that. So really, it's about finding what what brings happiness and joy to you. Now, I've got some follow-up questions about that very point, but we'll come to that a little bit later because I know one of the ways we're going to structure our conversation today is to look at a specific model that you mentioned last time, the PERMA model um, that supports our flourishing. Could you give us a quick recap as to what the PERMA model is, where it came from, and, and all of that good stuff? Yeah, thank you, Richard. I'm I'm very, very excited to speak about the PERMA model because in my opinion, it is, um, it's really like a recipe for um, personal and organizational happiness in many ways. Um, and I say recipe because it, although there are ingredients that you need, um, you can tweak it to your own palate. You can add things, you can do things in a way that feels right to you. So the PERMA model um, it stands for positive emotions, so P for positive emotions, E for engagement, R for relationships, M for meaning, and A for accomplishments. Now, PERMA as a model was developed by Martin Seligman, who was a former um, president of the American Psychological Association. He is credited with being one of the first um, kind of adopters or creators of the concept of positive psychology back in the 1990s. Um, but really, the concept uh, of PERMA comes from the broader concept of well-being, which was really um, developed, I think, as, as, a, as a concept, most notably by Abraham Maslow and Carl Rogers, a uh, very famous psychologist that many of your listeners might be familiar with. They came up with the concept of a self-actualized person, which was their idea of what does a good life look like? But self-actualization sounds a little abstract. I mean, what does that actually mean? And so Martin Seligman's work on PERMA built upon this concept, and it really gives us these five elements that we can implement to, to create well-being um, in our own life, but also within an organization. So um, there's been a lot of research done on PERMA, and what we know is that PERMA is um, linked with both physical health. So when we have these five elements, it, it brings us physical health, it brings us psychological health. But interestingly, in organizations, it's also been linked with job satisfaction. So um, having, you know, using the PERMA model as a way to implement well-being in your organization actually has really positive um, organizational outcomes. So it's an intervention that managers can very simply and easily and very cost effectively introduce into their organization. And one thing I want to mention before I get into the details of PERMA is that when we have the absence of these five elements, we know that it leads to distress. 
So when we have these five elements, it leads to positive outcomes. So really, it's a win-win situation um, for managers and for just at an individual level, uh, you know, bringing these, these five elements in or trying to focus on them more can really have positive impact. You know, what you've just said there is such a really interesting point about the absence of these. Um, some personal f- reflection about this that I did over my, my holiday was about what's missing, you know, um, by way of helping me understand myself a little bit more and what have I not been attending to or what have I not been paying attention to, or maybe have I been overemphasizing some parts of my life, some very general reflection. But looking at this PERMA model specifically gave me some great ideas for things that I could add to um, my routines, add to my agendas, rather than change my life, rather than make huge uh, reinventions. It was a little bit more of this. I've neglected that a little bit. I could do a little bit more of this. And it was just a really nice reflective tool. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't have to be these massive, you know, um, New Year's resolution kind of um, interventions in our life. It can be as simple as I'm going to try to hang out with my friends a bit more. And listeners will know that I am not a fan of New Year's resolutions for so many reasons. We've talked about it before. So that that small level, those small changes, that's where we want to focus on. A, a basic question about PERMA um, that I've had from, from people I've been discussing it with, do we need, need to start with the P and finish with the A? That's a great question, Richard. So uh, the way that the PERMA model works is that ideally each one of the letters is independent of it of the others, meaning that you don't have to have positive emotion to have positive relationships. Yeah? Although these two things might benefit having them together, um, you, you don't have to think about, well, I have to focus on all five things at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, chances are, if we sit down and think about it, we probably are doing some of these five things already. So it's really just about Um, taking stock of what you're doing, what you're doing right, and then just checking in and saying, what can I add to that? Or what can I maybe be more mindful of on uh, focusing on further in the future? That And that was going to be my second question, that is it enough to notice what we're already doing and make those explicit links? And, And it sounds like it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That that's been a personal reflection over the last few months that it's not that things were absent from my life, but making the explicit link that, oh yeah, no, I feel really good about stuff when I'm doing this. And and I realize that that's to do with my relationship. So let me see if I can do a little bit more of that. Or when I'm really clear on why I'm doing what I'm doing, it it makes life feel good. So let me try and build that clarity um, rather than reinvent myself. So hopefully we're making this more accessible and we're revealing that there's no strict rule book um, and you may well be doing some of this stuff already in your life. In fact, most people are probably doing quite a bit of this. It's about clarifying and connecting. Absolutely. Let's start at the the top. Let's. It's. It's. You know. It's. It's an acronym. Let's start with P for positive emotions. What. What. What can we do here? Yeah. So starting with with positive emotions. It's. Uh, you know. As I've spoken about previously in the um, episode on flourishing. Uh, you know the the 
duality of emotions, we have to appreciate that there is room in our life for negative emotions and we should understand that they have a function. But positive emotions are about recognizing and trying to be mindful about um, promoting more positive emotions than negative emotions. So just really being mindful about implementing positive emotions. So um, expressing gratitude is one of the kind of ways that Martin Seligman always talks about how can we implement positive emotions. Um, Another way is just talking about what's going right or what are we happy for or grateful for or what have we done well? And I think one of the best ways that I like to see this implemented in the workplace is anytime you have a meeting, before you get into the nitty gritty details of why you're there, just checking in with folks in the meeting and saying, you know, what's gone well this week? Or, you know, I'm an academic, I, I work in a university. So finding out like, what's something positive that's happened in your teaching this month? Mm. Um and that, that just reminds people and gives them the space to verbalize and, and share um, the, the strengths and, and positive things and the accomplishments that they've had. And so there's, a, there's an important point here, um, one, the duality of emotions, but also I, I've been doing a lot of work with my clients recently about coping how we cope with difficulties. And what's really important in coping is that we we try and maximize the healthy and sustainable coping strategies that we have, even though some of the unhealthy and unsustainable coping strategies could result in us having positive emotions for a short period of time. I'm thinking about using food and alcohol and, and other things to, to, to deal with a difficult day. We might have a positive emotion in the moment, but it's not really going to add to our, our sense of well-being over the longer term, is it? Oh, absolutely, Richard. And that just brings up such an important point that I think we all have to be aware of is uh, the concept of maladapting uh, coping mechanisms. So, um, you know, if we're using a coping skill, we need to remember and just be mindful of, is it causing harm further down the road? Is this actually helping me? So those momentary positive feelings you might have after you come home from work and had a stressful day and you have a glass of wine, ultimately, you know, um, it can lead to further harm down the road because, you know, alcohol is harmful for us. Um, so yeah, I think that that's great. Just always being aware of the coping mechanisms that we're using. Are they truly positive and helpful or are there negative consequences? And in that case, it's probably a maladaptive coping mechanism and we should probably not use it. Yeah. So it, it, something could result in a positive emotion, but consequences are, are important. I, I mean, I, I thought I might share some of my perspectives on this as someone who's been putting this into practice. I, something I did quite some time ago and then linked it back to this was starting to keep a list of the things that I do that, you know, very non-technically cheer me up so that when I've got a really difficult day or I've been through a difficult time of things, I can just open up Apple Notes and go, you know what, when I go for a walk, I feel better. Or when I reach out to this person and have a chat, I feel better. Can it be as simple as just keeping a list of these things to remind you that you do feel positive emotions when you do them? I absolutely love that suggestion, Richard. And yes, I think that that, um, I, some people call it different things, you know, gratitude journal or a happiness journal, having that list of, of positive things that you can go to and say, you know what, 
I'm going to, I'm going to watch, you know, this program because it makes me feel happy or go for a walk or I'm going to call my mom. Mm -hmm. These are all positive things. And I think that's a great idea. I'd love to know how many of our listeners have just thought of that point now that they've heard it. Maybe I will call my mom at the end of this. So (laughs) positive emotions, we've all got that insight if we pause and just think about it, that the times when we do feel positive emotions, it's about identifying small things that we can do that we're reasonably confident will give us those emotions and not get rid of or avoid the negative ones. We're We're just choosing where to focus, basically. Absolutely. E is for engagement. So this is a word that gets thrown around a lot in organizations, and it can mean very, very different things to different people. But in the PERMA model, what does engagement refer to? Yeah, so engagement from the perspective of the PERMA model is really about um, taking action to offer your your employees, your direct reports, opportunities to uh, develop themselves in some way, to work towards their strengths. Um, It may also be that you are helping them to recognize what they are doing well already and to to capitalize upon that. So engagement doesn't necessarily mean that you have to, um, you know, send them off on some kind of training program. It can be as simple as helping them identify what they do well and helping them to focus on that. Um, So some of the things that we can use to promote engagement are, for example, creating psychological safety in the workplace so that people feel that they can talk openly and honestly about what they are feeling, what they are experiencing in the workplace, good or bad. Psychological safety can help promote, for example, if I make a mistake at work and that I feel I have psychological safety with my direct, um, my manager, I would feel safe coming to them and saying, I've messed up. I did something wrong. You know, I'm now I need to find a way to fix it. And that will make me feel um, not only safe, but also engaged. I feel that, you know, I have a, a place in the organization regardless of whether I'm, uh, you know, regardless of the fact that I'm imperfect. Um, but also, I think a useful concept is uh, psychological capital. So psychological capital is this idea of what are the things that we do that get us through, um, that support us to, to continue to achieve and flourish. Um, and so that, that can be another way that we can promote engagement. It's, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because we can focus on what we do well. We can focus on really getting lost in that, you know, really putting our skills and our abilities into practice. And, and the more we're able to do that stuff, that could result in positive emotions as well. And that could spill over into relationships. But getting lost in that sounds a lot like that concept of flow. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And flow, I think, is definitely another thing that's worth mentioning with engagement. Um, Flow is this idea that we come back to the work we're doing because we find it intrinsically motivating. Um, And Again, we're more likely to experience flow states in the workplace if we're doing work that we find that we're good at and we enjoy it. So that engagement and flow piece are very much connected. I, When this comes up in conversations at work for me, I, I, I think of examples of sports people, professionals, you know, really getting 
absorbed in their performance or, or musicians really, you know, becoming part of their performance. Time flies by, the focus is just on the performance. How can we do more of this in our everyday lives? You know, speaking to our listeners right now who potentially aren't uh, <laughs> award-winning musicians or, or ten uh, tennis players or, or marathon runners, you know, how can we have more of this flow experience? Yeah, so that's a great question, Richard. And what we know about the concept of flow, um, it's incredibly energizing to be in a flow state. Um, so when we have a task that is not too simplistic, so it's actually challenging us in some way, but it's not too difficult. It's not so difficult that we feel incapable of doing it. You know, I, I, I perceive I have the skill set to do it, but it's still a challenge in some way. Um, when we have that kind of task um, and that we also enjoy doing it because it, it works to our strengths, this is the kind of activity that's most likely going to promote a flow state. So for me, I really love writing journal articles. I love the challenge of crafting the argument, finding the right uh, citation for for that line I've just written. So it's challenging enough, but it's not so challenging that I feel that I, I'm incapable of doing it. And I know that there it's working towards my strengths. And I know that there's a positive implication for me to do this. It's not, I'm not doing it for my manager. I'm not doing it for other people. I'm doing it because I can see how it benefits me in some way. And mm. so this is an example of what flow would how we can accomplish flow or get into flow. So reflecting on our skills and abilities and thinking about those times when we really have got sort of lost in a task and thinking about our, our motivation for doing it, there could be small examples in everyone's lives where they can experience more of this. And the lesson for managers, it sounds like, is it's important to know the people on your team and, and know when they are engaged and what challenges them but is doable and where their motivation comes from. Absolutely. Yes. You do have to have the, that knowledge of, of the people that you're managing to help, help them develop uh, the right kind of workload or the light, right kind of work um, situation scenarios that are going to help promote flow and, and work to their strengths. So R is for relationships and, you know, relationships aren't always easy, right? So how do we get the most from this element of the model? Relationships at work, yeah, I think you've, you've just kind of um, alluded to the fact that they can sometimes be challenging. But I think a lot of those challenges often comes come more from the organizational politics. Um, so if we just focus on the relationships of, you know, we're just people trying to get along and work together. Um, I think one of the best ways that we can promote healthy relationships in the workplace is really by recognizing and celebrating each other and our accomplishments. Um, I think that one of the best ways that, that organizations can go about doing this, whether this is a, a management level or a you know, broader organizational level, is really providing opportunities for people to come together to socialize in a non-task focused uh, way. So it's not about the deliverables. It's not about the timelines. It's just about having conversations about your personal life, you know, the day-to-day -day mundane reality of, of uh, just 
talking um, about non-work things. Uh, celebrating each other's accomplishments in team meetings can be another way that we can promote healthy relationships. Um, and, you know, also I think just um, promoting this idea that we are here to support each other rather than, um, you know, promoting competition uh, within the workforce can be another way we can promote healthy relationships. It strikes me that working on getting to know our colleagues as people rather than roles could also you know, reduce potentially opportunities for conflict or misunderstandings. It, it could actually contribute to us working well together and, and actually spark ideas for collaboration, not, not necessarily unhealthy competition. Absolutely. Absolutely. When we have just regular non-work related conversations and get to know our colleagues as people, as individuals, we gain better insight into, for example, what are their core drivers? What, what is it that motivates them? And we can then better navigate, you know, those organizational politics um, if we understand each other better on a personal level. So I'll put a link in the show notes back to um, an episode of the podcast where I interviewed Dr. Antonia Dietman about her research into the role of social chats in the workplace, because they are really relevant. Those little exchanges, those um, me telling you a little bit about me, you you doing the same, you know, the contribution to trust and all of that good stuff. So if you're interested in learning more about that, you can listen to that via the show notes. The, the relationships piece also, feedback I've had, is that it can imply a real time commitment. So how can we engage in this relationships piece without it being a massive time sink? That's a great question. And, um, you know, Antonia's research, I think, is really fantastic and very much relates to this element of relationships. And really, it's just about, you know, having, it doesn't have to be big conversations. We don't have to go out of our way to do it. Um, it's, it's really the little things, just checking in with people, asking how their day has been. Um, you know, but also I think there's a connection with this to emotional intelligence. You know, when we have well-developed emotional intelligence, um, we have a genuine interest in other people and we we want to feel connected to them. So um, there is that element as well that, you know, we may, um, we may just be intrinsically motivated to engage with people. And if we're not, we might have to be a bit more motivated and, and mindful about engaging and checking in with people. Of course, our, our preferences might be to, you know, retain or maintain privacy in the workplace and that our really important relationships and the ones that we want to invest time in could be outside of the workplace. And that, that's a way of looking after ourselves. But relationships full stop seem, seem like the, the fundamental here. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, we're talking about this kind of from an organizational perspective and how we can promote, uh, you know, PERMA within the workplace, but um, that shouldn't be taken to mean that relationships don't have meaning outside of that context. It's really about having relationships with people in general and focusing on those interpersonal relationships. And it might mean different things to different people. You know, introverts may have less of a desire to go out and socialize with people, and that's perfectly fine. It's really just about making sure that you're not, uh, you know, socially isolated. And that's really, I think, what the R in PERMA uh, is about. It's about engaging with other people. 
and it looks different for different people. And that's just fine. Um, I think that's it's important that people understand that, right? That this isn't going to be a whole other layer of commitment to take on. In fact, it's just about being mindful about how we interact with others and how we invest in our relationships. Yes, and reaching out to others when we feel that um, that we need that contact, and pulling back if we feel that we're becoming um, overwhelmed or overstimulated. It's really about finding that balance that's right for you. So this is a really important point with this, isn't it? Because this applies to all of the elements, I think, that it's not adopting new rules for life, but more maintaining um, visibility of these and attention on these and doing them in a way that works for us at different times, depending on what's going on in life. So less of the, I must do this every week, but more of the, how would I like to do some of this this week? Yeah, absolutely. So M is for meaning. That can be a bit of a challenging thing to even think about. It can feel very big and very important. So how do we how do we get meaning in our everyday lives? <laughs> yeah, I think you've said that well, Richard. Um, what is meaning? That sounds pretty big. Um, I mean, in the broadest sense, meaning refers to a purposeful existence. Um, oh, that's fine then, done, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but uh, that's, that kind of sounds a bit big. Um, but really, I think meaning is about being able to um, understand, you know, what is, what is it that our day-to-day life, our work, our hobbies, um, what are the implications of those? What do we give back to, to others, to society? So having, um, you know, a, a sense of purpose, really. You know, for some people that might that that sense of meaning might come from being a parent. For some people, that sense of meaning might come from the work that they do. For some, it might come from volunteering, for example. It's really just about having an idea that the work that you do, whatever that means, and when I say work, I mean you know paid for work, um, caregiving, um, just taking care of your your own needs. Is there a sense of purpose behind that? Um, and it's really about being able to see the bigger picture about the outcomes of, of the things that we do, being able to see that we have an, a positive impact on, on the world, on others. And that needn't be fundamental or huge. We can see and explore why we do what we do and the impact that it has in the smallest of ways, right? Absolutely. You know, um, as, as, a, as a teacher, I, I like to think that I'm educating other people and providing them the opportunities to go out and be there to live their best life. So for me, I derive a huge sense of purpose from my work. But even if, for example, I just think about the day-to-day mundane things that I do, like tidying up at home, I always stop and think I'm I'm making my the space that I live comfortable and 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 better for me to live in. That's purpose. That that even in its simplest form can have meaning. That's a great example. So it's it's looking for these things rather than having a moment of clarity that says this is why I'm here on the planet, or indeed I'm ticking a box that says meaningful existence. Because that can that can sound a bit overwhelming. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. 
the A here is for accomplishment. So tell us a little bit more about this because I know a lot of the individuals I work with, my, my coaching clients, would easily describe themselves and frequently do as busy people. So do they need more goals to work towards in order to feel accomplished? <laughs> uh, again, Richard, another fantastic question. I think, you know, having listened to your previous podcasts, um, I think we're kind of on the same page of this idea of hyper accomplishment, you know, the hustle culture that we seem mm. to, to see a lot of these days and this idea that we have to be constantly productive. Um, recently speaking with uh, somebody, they they said to me, um, rest is productive. Um, so, you know, being uh, focusing on accomplishments is really about what are those accomplishments for you? Um, is getting a full night's sleep an accomplishment for you? If so, fantastic. Um, so accomplishment can mean many different things. It's really about... Um, you know, what are the results that you are getting? Are you achieving your goals? And those goals are up to you to define individually. Now, if we're talking about achievement within the organizational context, then of course that brings about ideas of, you know, achieving organizational goals or goals set by your line manager. So I do want to just pivot a little bit in talking about accomplishment. Um, in the workplace, in organizations, um, we often are given goals um, and it can be challenging to kind of focus on how to, how to accomplish those. So I always want to just um, remind um, anyone who, who is in charge of, of um, you know, performance management, performance reviews, it's really important to remember that SMART goals are a great way to make sure that you are promoting um, the accomplishments um, that you are you are creating the the really the environment for accomplishment. So smart goals. Many of your listeners might be familiar with it, but it, it really just stands for specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and timely. So anytime you set a goal, it needs to kind of be framed within you know those five different elements. Um, but also you know understanding that. We have cognitive bias. Um, we can often overestimate how productive we're going to be. So as a manager, I want to always be mindful that uh, when somebody comes to me and says, I'm going to get this activity done in this timeline, um, just helping them think through, is that timeline realistic? Are you accounting for how much time you have to spend answering emails or being on the phone with clients? Um, and, you know, these cognitive bias around productivity um, need to be factored in because they can really derail accomplishment. And I think the point to be made here about the PERMA model is recognizing that accomplishment is about achieving goals. The size of the goal is immaterial. The type of goal is immaterial. It's really just about being able to to reach the end of that goal and say, I did it. And so we have to be mindful about the type of goals that we're setting for ourselves and how we're setting those goals up. So using those that SMART goal um, model that I just spoke about. And that, that relates to these other points, doesn't it? Because if we have excessive goals or, or goals that are just unrealistic or too demanding of us, they, they could really 
potentially damage our relationships if we're not attending to them. It could reduce our sense of engagement and really take away the opportunity for us to experience positive emotions. So it's it, it's enough, but not too much, which is deeply unscientific, but you know, you know what I'm getting <laughs> at here, to watch out. The goals are good, but in moderation. Yeah. And that accomplishment could be you know what, I navigated the complexities of Monday. I, I got through to the end of the day and did my top three things on my list. And for someone else, the goal could be I got that promotion. And for someone else, is I got out of here on time to go and do my childcare. It sounds like the goal element here is, is, a, is purposeful. It's yes. moving in a, a, a predefined direction rather than the kind of randomness and feeling a little bit lost that can come with busy lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, in our personal life, having goals, it, it having goals really is, is, um, incredibly important. Whatever those goals are, we know psychologically, um, there, we do benefit from having that sense of purpose that having a goal can, can bring to us. Um, in organizations, it may be a little bit more challenging. And so this is why I think managers really need to be mindful that when they are, performance managing um, others, that they're making sure that they're allowing, that they are fostering input from their the people that they line manage to really make sure that the goals that they are creating um, are something that speak to the individual who is supposed to be, you know, achieving those goals. And when I'm working um, individually with my clients, one of the things that comes up when we talk about workload is that they receive goals and they wouldn't necessarily have chosen those goals. And actually, one of the great ways to navigate towards successful goal attainment is to reflect on which of your values you're bringing to the table by doing that. It might be the driest, most boring, most unfulfilling activity. But if I do do this for my organization, which bits of me will I be relying on or living? And that can be a really nice way to ensure that um, even the most unfulfilling goals can be achieved. Yeah, I agree with that completely. So we've got this really nice model, um, which is a great first step in, in psychology, but we all know there's tons of competing models out there in the world. Many of them have no evidence supporting them whatsoever. They just live on like zombies. PERMA um, has, has evidence behind it and, and in, in both directions. More of this leads to well-being. Less of this um, results in distress. It sounds like a really applicable, useful model. Is there anything else listeners need to be aware of before they start putting this into practice, do you think? Well, you know, I think the the, the takeaway for me is that PERMA is something that anybody can implement. You don't have to be a psychologist to use it. And that's really great. Mm. Although there is that, I think, the reassurance that a lot of people have done research on it. And there's there's a wealth of, of you know, evidence to suggest that this does help in some way. Um, and it has both, um, you know, implications for both the individual level as well as organizational level. So, this is something managers can use to promote well-being in the workplace. This is something that you can use to promote well-being in yourself, in your family. It really has wide-reaching, um, you know, application. 
A final question for me then before we wrap up, and this might be a challenging one, but we've had some conversations on this podcast about, and I'll be blunt, some of the nonsense that shows up in organizations um, badged as a well-being intervention or a well-being program. Um, might it be useful for the people who decide what gets done in an organization when it comes to well-being to ask themselves, does this thing we're planning on doing fulfill any or all of the elements of the PERMA model? I think that would be a great kind of barometer to, to you know, test this against or compare it against. Um, and also, I think it's really important for organizations to stop and think about, you know, what is the goal that you want to get out of this well-being activity or well-being training? Um, for example, having a mandatory well-being day um, mm. might be counterproductive to what you're <laughs> attempting to achieve. So I think this could be a good kind of um, model to look at and say, how does our training compare against these five parts or these five elements? And the follow on from that then is it's not about a day, is it? It's about building these things into the ongoing experiences that people have at work. Absolutely. One day training on pretty much um, anything related to well-being is <laughs> probably not going to have the impact you're hoping for. It really is about the day-to-day -day activities that we do to promote this. It has been fantastic to walk through this with you. I know listeners will have follow-up questions. Um, so uh, if you're out there and you have a question or you just want to share something about your own application of the PERMA model, we love to hear from our listeners. So you can get in touch with us uh, via Twitter at MyPocketPsych, or you could send us an email. If it's a, a big, long thing you want to share, you can send us an email, um, uh, podcast at worklifepsych.com. And links to these will be in the show notes. So do uh, check them out. Thank you so much, Lynn, for your time. It's really appreciated. Um, I know our listeners really enjoy our conversations. So um, until our next conversation, thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. It's been a real pleasure. And everyone out there, thank you for listening. Thanks for downloading this episode of My Pocket Psych. To get in touch with questions and feedback, you can tweet us at worklifepsych or leave us a message on the contact form at www.worklifepsych.com contact. Thanks for listening.